already in your Bibles in 1 Thessalonians 2. And uh, um, there's a couple of things that I thought would be helpful, not only for all of our sakes, but as we think about the idea of the spread of the gospel and evaluating ourselves, whether personally or ecclesiastically, that is, as a church. What are we doing? What are we not doing? What can we do better in terms of the outreach of the gospel? And we'll be looking at that a little bit more. But I thought there I'd start out with a story. Now, if some of you may have heard this story on a one-on-one, so don't, don't let the cat out of the bag, okay, before I get there. But when you've lived the, uh, uh, the amount of years that I have, uh, you have a lot of stories in ministry. And, uh, and my wife has had to endure a lot of those stories where life could be in danger at different times in doing ministry. And, uh, but uh, on, on the other hand, you also encounter situations that you really aren't prepared for. Such was the case one time when we went down to visit our dear friends. Some of you know them, Ron and Wanda Thompson. We used to minister in Richfield, Utah, before we came to Eden. And we went down to visit them, and we were going to shoot around a golf in St. George because it was winter in uh, Richfield and Cedar City, but St. George doesn't have winter. So we were going to go down and golf. And so we, we uh, thought, you know, we'd do something easy, you know, a par three. You know, that's easy. And uh, so it was just Ron and I together, dear friend for some 45 years now. And uh, uh, so... We started out, and we were probably three, four holes into this, uh, this golf course, and uh, uh, we ke- kept having to wait for these three guys that were in front of us. Now, at the time, you know, we were like in our 40s, and they were like really old, you know. And so they were a little slower than us, but it was okay. We, we enjoyed the fellowship and talk, and, uh, and we got at one point, and we, we see these guys, they're weaving us, you know. And we thought they're waving us through, but, but they're, they're on the green. And I'm thinking, why are they waving us through and they're on the green? Two of them are standing up, and then I notice as we're squinting to see what's going on, what we thought was a golf bag on the green was actually a third party. And so I said, Ron, there's a guy down. Let's go help. And so we went tearing down that fairway, and we got to him, and uh, sure enough, he had dropped over. Now... You have to understand, I sprung into action. I'm a medic in the Army, right? I, and I didn't mean this intentionally, but I said, Ron, I said, listen, uh, you called the paramedics. I says, Ron, let's do, uh, you know, CPR. And I said, uh, I'll, I'll do the compressions. You do the, the mouth-to-mouth. And it's, at that time, it was five to one. So he was doing the mouth-to-mouth. I'm doing the compressions. About halfway through that, this guy loses his cookies. Okay, so green stuff starts coming up. Now, I'm not trying to be gross, but I am trying to get your attention. (laughs) And uh, suddenly, my good friend, Ron Thompson, he starts turning green. And uh, by that time, the paramedics show up. We uh, yield to their professionalism. And and I noticed that Ron had kind of walked over to the side of the green, and he was very green. And I put my arm around him. I said, now... Ron, are, are, are you okay? And he says, I'll, I'll be okay in just a minute. He says, but next time, Ganino, I do the compressions. You do the mouth-to-mouth. <laughs> After that, uh, they took the guy off. Little did we know that we were going to be encountering a life-and-death situation. We're just out for a round of golf, right? It was just an ordinary day out on the golf course. This guy dropped over, and uh, unfortunately, that, that man did not make it. But that Ron was able to follow up and have a ministry to that family. And, uh, but after that hole, I turned to Ron. I said, you know, Ron, I, I don't feel a whole lot like golfing anymore. <laughs> he said, I don't either. Let's get out of here. So we went back to the, to the clubhouse and, and uh, told the guy, look, uh, you know, we're going to cut our, our, our golf short. And he said, are, are you the guys that were doing CPR? And that guy said, well, yeah, you have free golf whenever you're here from out of town. I said, great. And, uh, but he just appreciated 
the fact that somebody was willing to step out. Well, I could tell you lots of stories like that through the years. Some turned out better than others. But the fact is, beloved, this is the point this morning. We live in the reality that people are life and death for spiritual eternity, right? Every one of you in this auditorium this morning, let alone outside of these walls, you are either lost or you're saved. The Bible doesn't have all these categories and labels. You are either lost or you're saved. You're saved because at one point, whether as a child or an adult, you put your personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, as I did at the age of 19, or you're still lost because you've never done that, or you're not sure if you've ever done that, you see. But I'm here to tell you, beloved, God wants you to know. The gospel is something that has energized me for a lifetime. That's why we came as missionaries to Utah, because we wanted to make a difference, not only in the church planting efforts, but seeing people saved. So I trust you'll never forget that story, life and death, but the fact is, bring that over to the spiritual realm. That's the reality of everyone that's walking planet Earth. I'm uh, going to put a couple of, uh, or a map, if you can throw that up first, Benjamin. And uh, uh, this is not a, a, a lesson on geography. I'm a visual person. Uh, so in Thessalonians, obviously, this was part of uh, Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, as he starts out down in Jerusalem and he works his way around, and you notice that way up across the Aegean Sea, you see Thessalonica. And so that's where we find ourselves in this book. That is when he's doing ministry, but that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 17. After he has his ministry there in Thessalonica, he writes to them uh, he had traveled down to Corinth. Now, as the crow flies, approximately some 250 miles. Now, to us, 250 miles isn't a big deal, right? <laughs> we do that weekly, if not monthly, at least, you see. But back then, think about 250 miles, communicating, traveling, and all of that. But Paul was very concerned that his labor would not be in vain. So he's writing approximately about 51, 52 AD. Paul's conversion was about 33, so you put that together. This is about 20 years after his conversion. And uh, he's writing, as we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, this is Paul, uh, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy to the believers at Thessalonica. Uh, and so you can uh, bring up the uh, second slide, Benjamin. And uh, uh, I've entitled this, The Marks of a Devoted Servant. But let me give a little bit of a setting here. I chose these words very specifically, okay? And this is the reason why, beloved. If we were going to talk about a Christian who is an incredible athlete, guess what? Pastor Dom can't compete. Okay? I can't compete. Now, I want you to know, though, being a jazz fan, there's many times that I, I would think about or just dream about, boy, it'd be so cool to be able to dunk a basketball. But I know in this lifetime that ain't going to happen, right? For a lot of reasons. We could go on and on. A, a great musician, a great athlete, a great chef, you see, I, I can't compete, but the key word here is the devoted or devotion. If you were going to look for evidence, if I was a devoted husband, what would you look for? And you don't need to put your hand up because I might get convicted, okay? But uh, you, you, there'd be some objective things you would look for. Is that right? That is, if, he's, if Pastor Dom is a devoted husband, these are the things that should be true. But what I'm here to tell you is when it comes to devotion, 
all of us can compete. Whether you're five years old or 90 years old, I can compete in the area of devotion to the Lord. And there are certain things that the Bible lays out for us of perhaps things that are important for us to compete in or at least evidence if I'm going to uh, honor the Lord in my walk with him. Uh, I want you to notice uh, the emphasis that Paul uses here uh, with regard to the gospel. If you've never studied uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians, I, I'm going to just recall for you that in chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and the Holy Spirit and full of conviction. In uh, chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, but through, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare unto you the gospel of God. In chapter 2, verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Okay? Now, you're catching the repetition of the gospel. Chapter 2 and verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Chapter 2 and verse 9, at the end there, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And then chapter 3 and verse 2, he says, And we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel to Christ, of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith. It's as if here, just in chapter 3 particularly, that Paul sends his number one co-worker because he cares so deeply for the believers at Thessalonica. And he wanted to know how they were doing. And so we find that six times in three chapters, he emphasizes the idea of the gospel. May I suggest to you, based on simple repetition, that this was front and center for Paul. Not only in life, we could certainly demonstrate when he says it in Romans, he talks about that the, it's the power of God unto salvation, that is the gospel. And uh, he says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. That was front and center for the apostle Paul, the gospel. And so perhaps it would be helpful for us to think about that and, uh, and also the cost that's involved in the gospel, and that's what we're going to look at uh, in just a moment as we begin our text. Now, I have to give a couple of disclaimers, okay? Number one, if you're expecting a thorough outline like Pastor Greg gives, you're in for a great disappointment. Pastor Dom doesn't preach like that, nor could I ever think of preaching like that. I admire and applaud that, okay? Uh, but I knew that when we extended a call for Pastor Greg to come to become our pastor, I felt very strongly that the next pastor had to, had to have the spiritual gift of teaching. And I only had to listen to him once, and I, I knew he had it. <laughs> because I felt like that was an important enough gift and trait that would take us to the next level in ministry. And I'm so grateful in what the Lord has done. Hard to believe that Pastor Greg has been here 13 years already. Isn't that marvelous? And uh, God has blessed us so much. And then, of course, with Pastor Chris coming along, and what a blessing he's been as well. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it would be kind of like you say, well, but Dom, can't you learn to do that? Well, let me tell you it this way. Okay, uh, it'd be like me trying to educate my son Nathan on technology. Okay, that would not work. I could try to snow him all I wanted; it wouldn't work. Or we have a thoracic surgeon in our fellowship. Okay, now I was a medic in the army. I know some basics, but if I got involved in a conversation with her to try to educate her all I knew about thoracic surgery. That would be foolishness on my part, you see? 
One thing I learned long ago in ministry, stay in your lane. <laughs> you know what, you, you have to know what you bring to the table, you have to know what you don't bring to the table. And that's okay, because God wires us and gifts us all differently. Now, for you parents, I already gave a story for the sake of the children. For you parents, and don't raise your hands, because this would be a great disappointment to your children. As new parents, how many of you sat down prior to having children and figuring out exactly over an 18-year period of time it would cost you to have a child, and you decided we can't afford to have children? Okay? Uh, don't raise your hands, okay? Because that would be a great heartache to your children. No, you didn't do that, you see, because you know that the trade-off of the blessings and the benefits and the return of your decision to have children would far outweigh any cost. But make no mistake about it, there is a cost to having children. Is that right? Absolutely there's a cost to having children. Not, not just financially, but uh, emotionally, spiritually, you name it. And uh, counting the cost is offset by the benefit, blessing, and return of your decision with regard to children. Now, point number one, and you can bring that up, Benjamin, the servant's cost. The servant's cost. Marks of a devoted servant. The first one is the servant's cost. I, I'm a realist, okay? Uh, I don't aspire and dream about things. I'm a realist. <laughs> I say, okay, this is what I can get done in a day. Now, I've had to adjust that as the years have gone by, okay, just as you have. But the fact is, I'm a realist about life and ministry. But the servant's cost, notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 9 that was read. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil that we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. There's our word again. The gospel of God. Notice what he, as he articulates several things about his cost, he, he uh, enumerates the depth, the depth of the cost. He uses these words labor and travail, or some of your Bibles have toil, Labor and toil. There are two words that describe the, the depth of his agony for ministry. It was not easy to do ministry. I've often illustrated it this way. Uh, I know uh, Pastor Chris, whenever people would work on over at the Parsonage, including myself, he's always so expressive, way over the top, and his gratefulness for working at the parsonage. Now, the things that I was trained to do, I don't think of those as labor and toil. That, that's what I was trained to do. I just do it, okay? Now, if I had to dig in ditches for eight to 10 hours a day, I can assure you it would fit into the category of labor and toil. <laughs> that is way, way difficult work, you see? Ministry, likewise, has a cost. And he it describes it with the depth. Uh, and, and, and by the way, I, I might just call your attention, only three times in the Bible does he tie these two thoughts together to describe the depth of ministry and the cost of ministry. And uh, we don't have the time to look at that. But then he also uh, talks and describes the extent of the cost. Notice he uses the terms night and day, okay? Uh, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, does that mean he preached 24-7 around the clock? Well, I, I don't think that's what he was referring to. But any of you that know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that what he did uh, to supplement his income was he was a tent maker. And uh, that was his vocation and occupation. And so he did that, and, uh, and as a result, 
he was able, who knows, some have described it, depending on who you read, that he would get up in the wee hours of the morning so that he could perhaps work like three to nine on tent making, and then he would go out and do ministry. Uh, or maybe late at night he would, he would do his tent making or both. But the fact is, Paul was zeroed in. It doesn't matter what the cost is. I am committed to furthering the gospel, and I'll labor at this 24-7, as it were, uh, as he worked as a tent maker, preaching and teaching perhaps during the day, doing tent making at night. Some have uh, often looked at this and said, well, see, he says that uh, uh, the reason he chose to pay that cost is he didn't want to be chargeable or a burden to anyone or a financial drain. And uh, now he didn't do that always later, uh, but he did it and, uh, uh, on the front end of things. Uh, having been a church planter for the amount of years that Elaine and I have, when we go into a community to start a church, when we've gone into a community, obviously there, there are no people and there is no income. And uh, so it's just you and you trying to start a church, okay? Uh, but as the church grows, as you reach people, then perhaps there's some income. Uh, and the church grows more and more until ultimately they can perhaps call their own pastor like Fellowship Bible did at one point back in 2010. But what does he point us to as the purpose for the cost that he says in verse 9 again, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God? That's why. That was his ultimate purpose, is so that he, he made those sacrifices, those decisions, so that he could proclaim. And this word proclaim has the idea of an actual whole heralder. That is, you're verbally delivering a message. Okay? Now, I realize that, yes, I, you can speak the gospel through your life and through your marriage and through your family and all those relationships. I get that. But that's not what Paul is referring to here. In order that he might be able to proclaim or herald the message that he was given to bring, particularly zeroing in on the Gentiles. So he previously expanded from verse 8, uh, where he says, uh, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you became very dear to us. Again, another detailed expression of how dear the people at Thessalonica were to Paul. That's why he was willing to send Timothy back, because it wasn't like, you know, the internet, send an email, a text, a letter. That was unheard of back then. So the best way to get accurate information is send Timothy back, because he deeply cared for these people. And uh, the servants cost. Now, I don't know what kind of costs you bear in your personal life and in the sphere of influence you have to people around you who perhaps do not know Jesus. But if there's anything you go away with today, beloved, may it be this one thing. Maybe I can ratchet up just one spoke or two because we're not allowing enough time in our schedule to rub shoulders with the lost. Now, I realize those of you that have jobs, uh, you rub shoulders every day with people who are lost. I get that. But I'm talking about where you have real interaction with lost people. You see, that's what drove me to the mission field is when I saw how needy the people were that I was working with in Detroit, and I asked God to give me fruit to the labor and the job that I was doing, and he allowed me to do that, and pretty soon I started one Bible study, then I started two Bible studies, and by, from that, the Lord gave me a real burden for just reaching people in their homes, you see. I don't know what God has in store for you. My initial desire 
was I went away from my biblical training, and I wanted to come back and just do Bible studies in homes because I recognized how receptive people were in homes that would never step foot in a church. So I wanted to do that for the rest of my life if that's what God called me to do. And then the Lord changed direction in my third year of biblical training, uh, never that I, thinking that I'd ever be doing what I'm doing today. But the Apostle Paul sets an example of cost. And again, I don't know what your cost is. I, I know what the cost is to some of our missionaries that serve with our, uh, our uh, uh, mission organization, Biblical Ministries Worldwide. I know the cost that some of them bear in, in the 44 countries they serve in. But I don't know what your cost is. But maybe God wants you to nudge in some time you know, when we think about time, talents, treasures, how can I invest maybe a little bit more of one or the other in order to rub shoulders with the lost? Beloved, can I let you in on a little secret for a pastor? As a church grows and as the demands grow on a pastor, that it's very easy, and I recognize that as a pastor, that you can lock yourself into your office and you can never rub shoulders with the unsaved because all of life and activity has to do with the, what you do in church, right? And it's 99% of the time, it's all saved people. Now, in one sense, you say, well, isn't that the job of a pastor? I get that. But how else are you going to rub shoulders with unsaved unless you divvy up time slots where you're going to do that? And... Uh, uh, whatever that is. Some, uh, for example, I told you the story about Ron Thompson. One of the things he always did in his church planting efforts was to rub shoulders by getting on community basketball teams because he's like 6'4". Uh, now, that would be ludicrous for me to do. I, I would be a downfall to any team I got on. But I, I did like doing two things. Number one, I knew I could uh, help people with projects that they were doing. Uh, because I've been in the building trades all my life. And so that would give me an end road with people. And then I liked, I enjoyed golfing. And so I'm not a good golfer, but I use that as an end roads to meet guys, be out on the golf course, and break down some barriers, you see. But the servant's cost, that's one of the first marks of a devoted servant. Secondly, and you can bring that one up, the servant's conduct, verse 10. Ten, you are witnesses and God also. So, so this is very serious. He says, you're, not only are you witnesses, but God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. The servant's conduct. Number one, that conduct was previously Evidence, that is, uh, if we were to look at Acts chapter 17, we find out that uh, as far as the, the main emphasis of ministry that the Apostle Paul and his disciples had in Thessalonica was three, he says that he preached there three Sabbaths. Now, does that mean that he didn't do anything else besides three Sabbaths? Uh, I don't know. But a lot happened in those three Sabbaths, if, if that's all that happened. But the fact is, that was the major thrust of his time at Thessalonica. I want you to know I'd be thrilled to plant a church in three Sabbaths. <laughs> but that usually doesn't happen in Utah, okay? Not saying that no one's ever done it or if it's impossible. But uh, 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 the Apostle Paul had a great ministry. And, but anyway, remember how we mentioned uh, earlier that we expressed that perhaps Paul was around the Thessalonians for the three Sabbaths, and uh, whether he's around longer, uh, uh, we, we don't know for sure. But be that as it may, the conduct, his conduct was previously evidenced by the believers at Thessalonica. You are witnesses, and God also. And what is it that they observed? Uh, the audience to this kind of conduct. Notice what he says again in verse nine or 10. 
that uh, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. And so uh, he's not writing in a vacuum. He's saying, you, you guys know this. You evidence this. You were witnesses of this. And he uses these three descriptive words. Holy, that's, you've heard the word hagios, set apart. This has to do primarily with our, our, our uh, being set apart by God. Secondly is righteous. The emphasis is more on my horizontal relationships rather than my vertical relationship. And then blameless, unblameable. You could not blame or bring a charge against them in the time that they ministered in Thessalonica. Now, at the end, I'm going to save it until the end. I'm going to bring some cautions to what we just saw here in verse 10. And the reason why is this. It'd be very easy to conclude that only people who bat a thousand or who are almost near perfect can be effective in ministry. That would be a wrong conclusion, not only based on this text, but on biblical truth overall. You see, my philosophy has always been in church planting that once people have a willing heart to serve, get them serving. That's one of the reasons why we, we do what we do up at Pioneer Bible Camp, where we get kids as early as 14 years old to become co-counselors and then ultimately counselors. If they get a taste of serving when they're a teenager, guess what? When they're in their 20s, they're not scared to death to serve. They've already been serving. But guess what? You, get, you try to get a 25 or a 30-year-old and say, hey, you know, we think that you could teach a Sunday school. <gasps> Me? Me teach a Sunday school? What, are you kidding? You see, that's life-threatening for them. But for people who have brought, been brought along in their service for the Lord, that's a very natural thing to do. And the servant's conduct, certainly what I do or fail to do has either a positive or negative influence on how effective I'm going to be in my ministry. No doubt about that. But please do not conclude that only perfect people serve. I remember in one of our previous ministries, uh, there was a, a, a lady that got saved. She was genuinely regenerated. I mean, just a, a real blessing. And uh, she, she uh, had approached me about uh, helping in the nursery. And so we went through that process, and uh, we plugged her into the nursery. And, uh, and I remember one of my older believers came up to me and said, Now, Pastor, do you know that lady's serving in the nursery? I, I said, Well, actually, I do. Are, are, are we okay with that? I mean, she's only been around a number of months, and she's newly saved, and, and I, I said, it's okay. I'll put my name on that. <laughs> I'll take that risk, because I know when people get busy serving, right out of the gate, they think that's very natural. Unless they start looking around and seeing people in the church that have been around 5, 10, 15 years, and they don't do a lick of things. And as long as they're not contaminated by that, they think that's natural. Just busy serving the Lord. And uh, but Paul uh, articulates his second mark, and that is the servant's conduct. And then thirdly, and uh, we'll wrap this up very quickly, the servant's communication. Notice what he says in verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children. Very simple statement. We exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now earlier, if you're not familiar with it, I think I hinted to it, verse 7 of that same chapter, he says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So he uses both examples, a mother, a nursing mother, and there's perhaps nothing of a more tender scene 
of a nursing mother caring for her child. But then there's the other example of a father. And here, he likewise, uh, he uses three descriptive words for the father. We exhorted, encouraged, and charged you to walk in the manner worthy of God. And uh, if we were to break those down, and our time is just about up, but exhorted, uh, exhorting, that is spurring someone on. That is, you can do this. You can do this. Go get it. Exhorting. Uh, encouraging. Consoling. You can do this. Sometimes it's just a matter of encouraging them because they're downhearted. And then charging, witnessing, or testifying. It's the job description of a servant of the Lord called to be involved in the ministry of the Word. That's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, that that's part of the ministry of being a servant of the Lord and communicating the Word of God. Now, what's the ultimate purpose, beloved, of all of this? Note, he gives us the ultimate purpose. At the end of that verse, he says, <clears throat> in verse 12, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, you can conclude and say, well, worthy of God? I mean, come on, get real, Pastor Don. <laughs> who, who is worthy of God? Think of it this way, okay? Um, you all have a last name, okay? That last name bears something. Is that right? Uh, as you're raising your children, if, you're, if they're still young, you know that that last name carries something and you'd like them to carry it on. Okay? Uh, and so the idea of walking worthy of the Lord, that is that I don't allow anything in my life that would reflect poorly on my Heavenly Father. Does that mean I'm ever going to bat a thousand at this thing? Called being a devoted servant to the Lord? Of course not. None of us are. I don't bat a thousand with, as a husband. I don't bat a thousand as a father. Why should I think I'm going to bat a thousand as a devoted servant? But wherever you find yourself, maybe God has pricked your heart and said, you know, I, I think I need to reevaluate a little bit. But may I suggest, first of all, before you even reevaluate, is to find out that you're, to evaluate whether you're even a servant. That is, that you've become a child of God by faith in the Lord Jesus. If not, then you can't be a devoted servant until you know him. He's the one that can make you a devoted servant. And then after he has, then I move into the realm of becoming that kind of a servant. Final applications. You can write these down if you like. But number one is that in the light of the final directive the Lord gave us concerning the gospel, it is a matter of life and death for the lost person who we are seeking to influence for Christ. Is that right? It is a matter of life and death. That's why I told you that shocking story at the beginning. Not because I wanted to make you sick. No, but I, I live in the reality. As I said, I'm a realist, and I know that, you know, work, serving in Utah, that nine out of ten people that I meet are lost. Okay? Not because I'm a critic or condemning, but they probably don't know the Lord, you see. Secondly, everything in life that has value, and in this case, eternal value, is worth any cost. The servant's cost. There is a cost involved. Elaine and I, having been in missions for all these years, um, you know, if you don't know the Italian culture, you have no idea what it was when we packed up the car and left 
Detroit and all my Italian relatives. It was like a funeral. And I, I'm not exaggerating. It was like a funeral. But that was part of the cost of wanting, following the Lord's leading to do ministry. Well, the Lord doesn't call upon us to bear that kind of cost. Not all of us. But there is a cost involved. And yet everything in life that has value, and in this case eternal value, is worth that cost. Although we may never buy a thousand, in our effort to faithfully deliver the gospel, perhaps there is a fresh awareness that will spark something in us in order to be more alert to the needs around us. I'm going to take the next few minutes to read you a story. It's a little bit lengthy. I don't usually do this, but I remember the first time I came across this story, it was so moving to me that I want to pass it along to you. If you've never heard it, uh, pay attention. If you've blanked out for everything else, stay awake for this, all right? It's called the George Street Story. Several decades ago, an English pastor by the name of Francis Dixon revealed the remarkable story of a gentleman who faithfully witnessed for Christ. In fact, after first telling this story, I received an email from another pastor in South Wales, Australia, who not only confirmed the man's testimony, but told me of his friendship with this faithful witness. The story begins at the Crystal Palace Baptist Church in southern London. A man asked if he could give his testimony to the assembly. The pastor said, sure. <clears throat> the man said, I, I've just moved to this area from Sydney, Australia. After just a few months, I visited some relatives in Sydney. I was walking down George Street, and as I passed one shop, a little white-haired man stepped out in front of me. He handed me a track and asked, are you saved? And if you died today, would you go to heaven? The man continued, I walked away but was dumbfounded. No one has ever asked me that question before. On the flight on the way back to Heathrow in London, I was puzzled as I read the little track he gave me. I called a friend who was a Christian and he told me how to accept Christ. I just wanted to share with you friends that I am now a Christian. Of course, the church was excited. Uh, the church was excited to hear his testimony of a man who would become a part of their church. The pastor of this London church then flew to a three-day series in uh, Australia. During the series of meetings, a woman came to him for spiritual counseling, and he, of course, wanted to know where she stood with Christ. She said, well, I used to live in Sydney. A couple of months ago, I was doing some shopping on George Street. She told the same story of this white-haired uh, man that, and, and asked her, gave her a track, and asked her if she had ever trusted Christ as her Savior. The pastor here led me to Christ. Uh, twice in a few days, this pastor had encountered someone impacted by a little white-haired great man on George Street. A few weeks later, this pastor flew to Perth, Australia, where he preached at an evangelical church. After one of the services, uh, the leading elder of the church took him to dinner. While they were eating, the pastor asked his fellow elder when he had come to faith in Christ. The lay elder said, well, I grew up in this church until the age of 15, but never made a commitment and grew up in a place of influence. I was in Sydney three years ago on business when a little white-haired man accosted me with a track, asked me if I was saved and on my way to heaven. I tried to tell him that I was a Baptist elder in a Baptist church, but the little man didn't care. I was so angry that when I arrived back in Perth, I told our pastor what had happened. My pastor told me, you know, for years I've wondered if you were truly born again. Then my pastor led me to genuine faith in Christ. This pastor flew back to the United Kingdom, and he was speaking in Lake District of a Christian conference. He told these three testimonies to his audience. After the meeting, three pastors, unknown to one another in this regard, came to this pastor and said, that they had all come to faith in Christ about 35 years ago after receiving from this same man on George Street a simple gospel tract. The pastor was absolutely dumbfounded. The following week, the pastor flew to Keswick Convention in the Caribbean to speak at a group of missionaries that had gathered. He was so excited about the fruit of the little man's 
testimony and he shared with his audience. At the close of his teaching session, three missionaries came up and said that they had been saved 15 to 20 years ago through the initial testimony of this same man on George Street. And the end of this meeting, the pastor flew back by way of Georgia to, in the, to the U.S. on George Street. At the end of the meeting, the pastor flew back, uh, I'm sorry, I, I said that twice, to speak at the Naval Cha Chaplain's Convention. He spoke three days re uh, uh, at, uh, to a thousand chaplains about being a witness for Christ. At the end of the conference, the chaplain general took him out to dinner and asked, how did you come to faith in Christ? The chaplain general said, well, it really was miraculous. I was in the Navy and lived a terribly immoral, prolific life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we ended up on a brief leave in C Sydney. I uh, partied in downtown Sydney that night, got on the wrong bus, and took me to George Street. As I got off the bus, an elderly white-haired man suddenly appeared who, brought, who, uh, who I thought was a ghost and asked me, Sailor, are you saved? If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? That confrontation shocked me so much that when I got back to the battleship, I sought my, out, my chaplain, and he led me to Christ. I soon began to prepare for the ministry under my chaplain's guidance, and now here I am in charge of a thousand chaplains to share Christ with others. This same pastor, six months later, the end is coming, flew to India to do a convention for 5,000 missionaries in an eastern area of the country. At the close of the meeting, a humble Indian missionary took him home for a meal. The pastor asked him, how did you, you as a Hindu, come to faith in Christ? The missionary pastor responded, I was very privileged position working in India, diplomatic mission, and traveling the world. One of my diplomatic trips took me to Sydney, where one night I was doing some last-minute shopping on George Street, carrying packages. I, a courteous man stepped out and asked me, told me, told me a similar story of this white-haired man that handed him his track and, uh, and uh, asked him ab about whether he had trusted Christ as a Savior. Uh, and as a result, I sought out my Hindu priest who... Uh, if he had an answer, uh, I did uh, what the missionary told me to do, and uh, I went and talked to, my, uh, to the pastor that I knew and came to Christ. Eight months later, the, this pastor of the Crystal Palace Baptist Church, whose travel schedule, by the way, I would not want and had meetings in Sydney, he asked the pastor there, do you know a little man who hands out tracts on George Street? The pastor said, I sure do. Uh, he's done it for years. His name is Mr. Jenner. But I don't believe he does anymore because he's so old and frail. The visiting pastor said, I've got to meet him. His colleague said, not a problem. I know where he lives. Two nights later, they went to a small apartment, knocked on the door. A tiny, frail little man with white hair answered the door. He invited them in, sat them down, and made some tea for them, serving them even though his hands trembled over the past three years. He told uh, him all the Christians he had met from England to Australia to India to America who had come to faith in Christ because of the gospel witness on George Street. The little man sat there with tears running down his cheeks. He said, I made a commitment that I would attempt to share Christ with someone every day. Up to this moment, I've only known of 10. If I, uh, sometimes I, uh, I could, uh, couldn't do it. Uh, that is, sometimes he would share it with at least 10. Sometimes I couldn't do it. I was so sick or whatever. I, was, I wasn't paranoid about it. It was just my desire. The man continued, when I retired from the military, I decided that I would devote my busiest and best place in Sydney to pass out tracks uh, was on George Street. Now for 40 years, I've been courteous, and they've accepted my gospel literature. However, I must tell you, as he said with tears running down his cheeks, that until now I never knew of one person that responded favorably to my question. Until, until today, that until today I have never known of one person that responded to my witness all these years. The pastor eventually did a rough count 
as best as he could determine that came to the conclusion, and listen to this, that at least 146,000 people were influenced by faith in, to, to faith in Christ because of this man's consistent, unfruitful to him testimony. And this was only the tip of the uh, iceberg. Mr. Jenner died two weeks after these pastors visited him. Imagine only a few Baptists in southern Sydney ever knew about Mr. Jenner. However, in heaven, knew him very well. And so, beloved, you and I may never be a Mr. Jenner. That's okay. But maybe Mr. Jenner can be an inspiration to us. Whatever my little world is, maybe it's literature, maybe it's taking people out for coffee, maybe it's having them in for a meal, maybe it's saying, okay, as a family, we're going to invite unsaved people that we know once a month into our home for a meal. Or we're going to meet them at a restaurant for a meal. Whatever the Lord lays on here, that's between you and him. Remember I mentioned last time in my Sunday school lesson that the primary purpose of the church gathered is edification. The primary purpose of the church scattered is evangelism. What are we doing out there, outside of the walls of this building? May God help us in our evangelism and in sharing the gospel with people, in some cases, that have never heard. And in Mr. Jenner, he never knew of the influence that he had, but he was faithful in what he did. And I'm sure there was, I think of Mr. Jenner when I think of a more triumphal entry when he entered heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these few moments with these dear folks. Thank you for their attention. And I pray that uh, as we take these things to heart about the devoted servant, thank you that we can all meet that criteria of being devoted to our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus. And I pray that whatever you lay on your uh, on the uh, heart of your people today, whether they need, they personally need to trust Christ as their Savior, or whether they personally need to put in some slots of time in their schedule so that they can, uh, in a more effective way, reach out to lost people. Lord, may our mentality not be us for and no more. So help us by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.